Wonder Thing Studios proudly presents a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Seth Skorkowski. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Alistair Stewart. And you've tuned into a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With... 20 Minutes With is triage for your fiction. It is an in-depth, full-contact look into the mind of an author. You will learn things here which no one wanted to know, but everyone will quickly realize they should. (laughs) Prepare for brain meats. Delicious, (laughs) delicious brain meats. Indeed, keeping with the the food metaphor that seems to be a a factor in all of our episodes. Well done, sir. Well done. Alistair Stewart, I am so delighted to have you in in the the virtual co-pilot seat for this episode. We've had you on as a guest host in the past, twice actually as a guest host, Uh, uh, and I'm delighted to have you as a co-host, man. Thanks for making the time. Thank you for asking me. This is always a delight. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna have some fun today, Al. I, I don't know what your is, what is your libation of choice when you're sitting back and relaxing. Oh God, tea. I'm really dull. <laughs> you're so British. <laughs> on, on, honestly, the worst possible thing in the world. I, I, I am essentially a kind of slightly off straight edge Brit, which means I I drink tea with no milk. Oh God. I, oh. I know. It's ridiculous. <laughs> I don't have nearly enough tattoos to cover this. You're, <laughs> you're a fugitive from British justice. Uh, well, well, pour yourself a hot cuppa there, sir, <laughs> and uh, uh, make yourself at home, because this is going to take a little while, uh, as I introduce our listeners to our guest host for this episode of 20 Minutes With. 1978 was when he drew his first breath beneath the pine trees of East Texas. Now, actually, I'm pretty sure he was born in a hospital, but I don't think it would surprise anyone to learn that he was actually born in the wild. Uh, He has a long-standing love affair with the great outdoors, and as a child, enjoyed many camping trips with both his father and the Boy Scouts. And to this day, while his stories may be written at the keyboard, they are more often conceived and developed during long walks surrounded by fresh air and scenic views. But, dear friends, it wasn't all grizzly atoms and pup tents for our guest host. As a child, his parents received many warning signs that their son would grow up to be a colossal nerd. (laughs) Not only were those signs ignored, but his family, friends, and teachers all but led him down the primrose path to Geekville. Now, for one thing, dude loved Halloween, and preparations for that holiday usually began around August, where he'd often be found rooting through the latex masks, plastic skulls, and other traditional paraphernalia. Now, this delight and fascination with dressing up would eventually lead to a long-standing tradition of cosplay, renaissance festivals, and his wedding being celebrated as a masquerade ball. But I get ahead of myself. All right, he was already feeling the itch to write when, at the age of 11, his brother shoves a VHS tape into his hands. And for our younger listeners, VHS is what us old folks used to watch movies on. And tells him to watch it. It was The Highlander. So we've got sword fights in a parking garage, decapitations, and Sean Connery as an Egyptian Spaniard with a Scottish accent. Dude was hooked. 
Now, his first introduction to genre fiction was at the age of 12 with, no big shock here, The Hobbit, recommended by his cousin. Now, he gave it a try. All right, epic quest, fighting trolls, magic treasure. Bam, he was hooked again as we all were. Now, he jumped right into the Lord of the Rings and from there jetted gracefully to David Eddings and more. So now, The Hobbit is mingling with fantasies of dueling immortals behind his local 7-Eleven, all of this fanning the flames of his literary aspirations. And he had some encouragement in that department, too, in the form of an eighth-grade teacher supporting him by helping him submit some of his stories for publication. Then, when he was 13, his mom pretty much seals the deal by buying him the D&D box set. And he tears through the rule book, oogling the Red Dragon poster and rolling up his first character, an elf fighter mage. Now, as a side note, he would cherish that Red Dragon poster for almost a decade, hanging it proudly until it crumbled in his hands like an ancient Dead Sea scroll. Then he finds some friends that play D&D in his Boy Scout troop. And one of the dads of one of the boys in the Boy Scout troop was an experienced DM. And then, it's just one damn thing after another with this guy, and then he sees the D&D supplement for Lankmar and the Fawford and Greymouser stories of Fritz Lieber, and that opened up a whole world of pulp fiction sword and sorcery novels that, to this day, continue to captivate him. Now, high school brought the usual distractions of girls and punk rock, but here our guest host begins to deviate from the standard nerd narrative in two specific ways. First, he falls in love with the girl who would one day be his wife. However, in the classic nerd narrative, she's not all that into him, but he is a likable chap. They become friends, and in a Herculean display of persistence and a testament to his true love, ten years later, he finally wears her down, and they get married. Now, the other deviation from the nerd narrative back in high school is that he gets involved in debate and public speaking. Now, it's not surprising that he has a way with words, really, but he does start getting some compliments on his voice. So in 1996, he attends Tyler Junior College and gets an associate's degree in journalism, then attends the University of North Texas, graduating in 2000 with a bachelor's in radio, TV, and film. Now, it may occur to you to wonder, how did he make ends meet in college? <laughs> well, I'm glad you asked. Apparently, there's lucrative part-time work to be had in the lacing women into corsets and fluffing them business at Renaissance Fairs in North Texas. No doubt that's the best job ever. Uh, but sadly, there was still that nerd addiction to contend with, and much of his lacing cash gets spent at a local video store that had, and I quote, one of the greatest collections of cult and weird-ass cinema ever assembled. Uh, he's also spending his cash at The Church, a local goth club, where our guest host would watch the local vampire The Masquerade LARPers strut their stuff. He's also drinking deeply from the works of William Gibson and Clive Barker. Both writers continue to inform his writing, but for Barker, he cites Imagica as a pivotal book in his literary consumption. And I have to agree, that book is staggering in both scope and terrible beauty. 
So, he graduates college and is working on an epic high fantasy novel. But during a break from this massive doorstop of a work in progress, he writes a short story called The Mist of Lichthafen. An homage to the mighty Fritz Lieber, which he then sells to the third alternative press for an issue of their Black Static magazine. The Mist of Lichthofen would ultimately receive a long-list nomination for the 2009 British Fantasy Award, and, leveraging his vocal talents, our guest host went on to narrate the story for TTA's Transmissions from Beyond podcast. Now, he's still working on this ginormous epic fantasy novel, but during a brief stint of writer's block, he pens an original story about a thief named Black Raven. Now, later, during a trip to Venice, Italy, not California, uh, he wrote Race for the Night Ruby, featuring the same character as a master thief. Now, of course, any writer worth their keyboard will be compelled to fill in the blanks between those two stories. And so far, our guest host has penned well over 20 stories featuring the thief Black Raven. As for the fate of those stories, just hang on. I'm getting there. <laughs> so, here we are. 2011, FenCon, Dallas, Texas. Our guest host attends a three-day writing workshop headed up by former RTP guest host Lou Anders. He has his masterwork with him. 200,000 words of epic fantasy awesomeness. It doesn't go well. In fact, at the end of the workshop, our guest host realizes the book is just unsalvageable. And honestly, he's relieved. With the albatross of the first book cut from around his neck, he starts on a new novel, an urban fantasy of holy pistols and demon hunters. Now, in a lovely bit of karmic destiny, while he was working on this new literary endeavor, our guest host attended an agent and editor's conference, and Lou Anders was sitting on a speculative fiction panel. Now, after reading our guest host's query letter in the first two pages of his work in progress, Lou responded with, I'd keep reading this. Which, for Lou, is the equivalent of champagne and cannons. So, with that encouragement, our guest host keeps writing, and along the way gets introduced to Joe Martin, publisher at the Mighty Ragnarok Publications, on Facebook by a mutual friend, Jason Waltz, of the equally fabulous Rogue Blades Entertainment. Now, it started off innocently enough, the usual banter and hijinks one indulges in on the Facebooks, but when Ragnarok announced their anthology Kaiju Rising... Our guest host realizes Ragnarok was the perfect place for his new book. He politely and discreetly inquired about submissions of Joe, and Joe asks for a pitch. Our guest host delivers it, and then Joe tells him to send a full outline to Ragnarok editor-in-chief Tim Marquis, who is another former RTP guest host. Now, there's a problem here. Our guest host didn't have an outline. He didn't do outlines. But he did now, by God, and for the first time, he had a novel mapped from start to finish. And he liked it. The book, titled Dameron, the first of the Valdecon series, sold to Ragnarok in 2013 and would go on to be shortlisted for the Reddit Fantasy Stabby Award for Best Debut Novel and receiving an Audio Award nomination for Best Paranormal Audiobook. The second book in the series, Hunassier, was just released this past March and doubtless there will be more on the way. Now, those Black Raven stories about the Master Thief, what happened to them? Well, the folks at Ragnarok know a good thing when they see one. They signed our guest host to not one, but 
two collections of those fabulous tales. The first is out, titled Mountain of Daggers, with the next collection, Sea of Quills, hitting stands October 2015. And dear friends, I'm sure you join me in hoping that this is just the beginning. He goes by the name Don Carnage with the Blazing Sun Privateer Cadre of Texas. Ever since he pimped out his family Honda Prelude, he's been stalked by police cars whenever he's on the road. He has a reputation for licking beautiful book covers, and he's been quoted to say, I love kilts and will gladly get jiggy in them. (laughs) Dear friends, please welcome to the big chair here at the Roundtable Podcast, Seth Skorkowski. Seth, holy crap, what an epic saga that is that stretches out behind you. So much awesomeness ahead. Thank you so much for making the time, man. We appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Now, before we start the clock on 20 minutes with i gotta ask what is fluffing in the context of a woman's corset i i, I gotta know this uh well you know you, when she puts on her her corset and uh, you start tightening it you have to kind of pull her her breasts up a bit not too much <laughs> Uh, so they're full and luxurious and i see i see and, and you got paid for this Yes. God, you are my hero. Greatest job in the world. For Best job ever. Holy crap. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, let's, enough, enough, that, that curiosity is, uh, is settled. Thank you for that. Let's, let's set the clock for our 20 minutes with, I have no doubt that we'll be ignoring it, but, uh, it's good to at least observe the forms. All right. Um, I, I, my first question for you, Seth, is, is what a shock, a craft question. Um, uh, you have spoken uh, in, in several blog posts about the concept of the conflict character, uh, specifically Malcolm Romero in uh, Dameron uh, is the conflict character against the protagonist, Matt. And that's a fascinating concept and a, and a nuance of, of the writer's craft that I, I hadn't really heard of before I saw you mention it. Could you... For just a little bit wax rhapsodic on on the function of the conflict character, what what function they serve in the context of a story, and how best do you think uh, uh, to to leverage that in the telling of your tales? Well, a, a conflict character is you know it's a character that's not the antagonist. Right. Um, a lot of the times they actually have the same goal as the hero, uh, but they have a different approach to it and will come in conflict. Or maybe they just don't like the hero for whatever reason, but they're still not a, a bad person. Uh, Severus Snape is a, is a very famous one. Sure. Uh, I suppose, you know, because ultimately Severus wanted the same thing that Harry did, but, you know, they butted heads a lot and then Severus just hated Harry. Uh, I always like to think of well, two famous conflict characters would be, uh, Bones McCoy and Spock. Mm, yes. And, you know, they, they have their collisions, even though ultimately they want the, the same end. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, if you have a hero and all of their friends and they all get along and it's smashing, it's kind of boring. Um, <laughs> you know, or if you have your heroes that, that bicker or will pull in two different sides to an idea and they have to debate how to do it or, um, overcome, you know, the hero has to overcome the conflict character to finish their goal. Like, uh, 
That was, was one I was thinking of as classic stories where there's a detective on the case and the hero is trying to catch the bad guy and the detective thinks the hero did it. And mm, the detective's okay. a good guy, but you know, they're kind of getting in the way of the hero catching our supernatural werewolf villain. And <laughs> yeah, but ultimately they're not a bad person. So ultimately they, they, they provide plot conflicts that aren't necessarily promoted from the antagonist of the story. And they also create, I mean, do you, do you set them up as a, as a foil, as a, as the, not necessarily the, well, you said it's not the antagonist, but he's kind of the antithesis. He embodies a different set of ideals in pursuing the same ultimate goal of the protagonist, right? A lot of times, yes. Uh, they're, you know, they just have a, a different way of looking at it. The Bones and Spock one are a great example. You have logic versus moral. Right, right. And Kirk was always trying to wrestle between them. Do I take the logical approach or the moralistic approach to this? Okay, excellent. And, and you know, as as cited, you know Malcolm Romero is is Matt's conflict character. Uh, what about in uh, Hunasier? Are you do you have one for for Malcolm? Are you are you continuing that that tactic uh, in in your other stories? Okay, well in the in the second book, uh, Malcolm is now the hero, right? And uh, that one is it's kind of a detective story versus an action story. And he, while investigating a crime, is basically coming across people that do not like him because he is. He's a he's kind of a, a voodoo priest <laughs> that other the other local kind of the, the voodoo priests kind of see him as you're you give us a bad name. You know, they, mm-hmm. they've become very family friendly. They have churches and they have barbecues and they're they're trying to be a community. <laughs> and here comes this kind of old school demon hunter with a magic machete who you know wants to avenge something with blood. So they're the conflict because he represents something that they think works against you know their goals okay intriguing and and they're all voodoo priests so they all have that same philosophical foundation it's just that malcolm is pursuing it differently than than the other characters around we'll be back with more of our conversation with seth gorkowski after this brief promotional break a sunken treasure an ancient biblical artifact a mystery as old as humankind On January 25, 1829, the Portuguese brig Dorado sank off the coast of Indonesia, losing its cargo of priceless treasures from the Holy Land. One of these lost relics holds the key to an ancient mystery, but someone does not want this treasure found. Former Navy SEAL Dane Maddock is hired to locate the Dorado and recover a lost artifact that could shake the world. Join Dane on a perilous adventure that takes him from the depths of the Pacific to ancient cities of stone as he unravels the mystery of the Dorado. Sean Ellis says, Dorado is reminiscent of early Cussler adventures. You'll definitely want more Matic. And Megalith Book Reviews says, David Wood just might become the new master of the biblical action thriller. Dorado, a Dane Matic adventure by David Wood, is available on Audible, iTunes, and wherever books and ebooks are sold. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Seth Skorkowski. The, the idea of the conflict character really interests me, and especially the, the types you mentioned. Bones and Spock didn't occur to me for a second, but and that's a perfect one. The, the one that leapt to mind for me was Marshall Gerard from The Fugitive. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Uh, in particular, the I didn't kill my wife, I don't care exchange. And just off the top of my head, the other one which leaps to mind... And I'm one of the six people not related to film crew who genuinely think these two years of the X-Files are the show's finest hour. <laughs> there's, um, 
there's a fantastic moment in the last couple of seasons of the X-Files when they introduced Doggett and Reyes, where for about the first year he's on the show, Doggett is the perfect ideological counterpart to Mulder. And they actually make it a feature, not a bug, because he's pragmatic. He's, his, I think at one point he does actually say something along the lines of, if it's got wrists, I can cuff it. It's fine. <laughs> there is an entire episode. And the, I mean, this, this has got to be a frankly horrifying amount of years back now. But there is an entire episode with a kid who everything he draws comes to life. And about halfway through it, Doggett is thrown into a huge pit and covered by four foot long cockroaches and you hear him scream. And everything goes horribly wrong. And then just as all seems lost, Doggett turns up, punches the kid in the face, cuffs him. The others are all like, but you died. And he, he turns to them and goes, really? Firstly, that pit was far too deep. The shack would never have held up with it under there. Secondly, cockroaches that big would collapse. It's fine. And for those two glorious years, the Exiles became a show not about this kind of pre-millennial tension-riddled conspiracy theorist, but this guy going, oh, this is bullshit. (laughs) The triumph of logic over the supernatural. So I, I really like that. And your idea of the conflict character is, is very interesting. And I think it's one of those things that sits very closely in the beautiful, absolutely bulletproof, simple idea that's so simple and obvious that 99.9% of people never see it <laughs> and never think of it. So top marks for spotting that one. Definitely. Um, yeah, I, I have a couple of questions for you. The, the, the first one basically skews nerd good and hard. Uh, you, you talk a lot <laughs> about the, the kind of impact that D&D in particular and tabletop RPGs in general had on your early development as a writer. I am something of an outlier in that field. One of the things I do is, is I write role-playing supplements, and I, I ran a game store for years. And D&D never connected with me. I had this string of really dreadful DMs that did nothing. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs> I had one it. game with a 25-page character sheet. Holy crap. I know. <laughs> so my, my my question really is this. Given your tremendous fondness for, the, for certainly, at the very least, the first golden age of Dungeons & Dragons, how are you getting on with Fifth Ed? And indeed, <laughs> are you? Um well, when I first started playing, uh, my G, we had second edition had just come out. Yeah, my GM is like, I'm not buying new books. And, uh, so we pillaged garage sales and bought a bunch of first ed books. And then, uh, you know, third ed came out and I absolutely loathed it. And, uh, cause it took all the power, uh, away from the GMs. You know, it was very difficult to run. Mm-hmm. Uh, fourth ed I never even looked at and I, Got, finally got talked into looking at 5th edition, and it is the cleanest uh, role-playing system I've ever played. I'm a huge fan really? of it. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, awesome. I, I'm a recent convert. We just started playing it in January, and I absolutely love it. Uh, that is high praise. I mean, Indeed. Ed, Indeed. I might actually crack open a copy of 5th edition now. Holy crap. Exactly. If 5th Ed's bringing an AD&D player in from the cult, then <laughs> I can't think of higher praise than that. Because, I mean, I always love the backgrounds. I, I mean, I, I can and have waxed lyrical about how Asia Bonds in a kind of world would have been seen as a paradigm-breaking piece of tie-in fiction. Um, but I'm not going to do that now. Because it's <laughs> 
Thank you. But, Thank uh, you. I'm, anytime. <laughs> but no, I'm I'm really really heartened that that it's well, firstly that you're still playing because tabletop role playing is brilliant, and and you know occasionally it pays me, so win. Um, <laughs> and secondly, that it's still. You know, the, the new edition is actually attractive to people who like doing stuff other than wargaming with occasional slight hints of character. So you have made my night, sir. Well done. <laughs> well, Seth, wonderful me, system. I, I could go on for two hours about just it. Well, let me let me ask you, Seth. You, you've you've gone on record as saying games. Well, I forget the exact quote. I'm sorry, but it was it was basically the, to the effect of games should games that you role play should or role playing experiences should not be turned into stories. I think was was the basic gist, the idea that that the translation of a gaming experience does not work as the foundation for good fiction. Uh, so I'm I'm curious. First of all, have I got I got that right? Is that are you still behind that? Well, it, 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 there's a lot of bad fiction out there that's <laughs> obviously based off of someone's D and D game. Uh, quickest way to spot is they start in a bar. Yeah. <laughs> It, they read like a D&D game. You've got all the archetype characters, and it just it just reads like one. And I've got my D&D stories, and I can sit around, and we can swap adventure stories for hours upon end. But they don't make for good reading unless it is a very deep, deep foundation, and there's a lot of stuff kind of masking it. Um, but if you're reading it, you're like, this is just a D&D adventure. No, it's... It's boring. <laughs> but you've also uh, uh, come out very, very soundly on the Brandon Sanderson side of things. And if if nothing else, Brandon Sanderson's stories were made to be translated into a role playing game. Just just based on based on the merit of, of the minute, the detail that is that has gone in, in, in developing that. So so what's the relationship in your mind of, of the role playing game and fiction for you? Well, the uh, the role playing game to me is oh, it's like it's just it's more of just the creative outlet for a bunch of people. Um, but as far as the the GM gets to build the world, the players get to just experience it and mostly just laugh at you know dick and fart jokes the whole time. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's mostly just about having a, a, a great time together, not necessarily about telling a grand story that follows any form of story structure because players will never let you give story structure to a game. <laughs> well said. <laughs> so true. Every GM on the planet just went fucking right. <laughs> the GM's lament. <laughs> well, let me let me ask you this then, Seth. Um, several times uh, you've mentioned that uh, that Fritz Leiber uh, was was a strong foundation for you with the the Fofford and Grey Mouser stories introducing you to sword and sorcery, and and you've actually come out several times in in not necessarily defense but certainly in the in the celebration of the pulp fiction format and genre. And I'm curious, what is it for you that you find so so compelling and engaging with that format? And have have you found it to be an influence on the way you tell your stories? Oh, absolutely. Um, with uh, with with pulp stories, it, it's about adventure and excitement and going. Oh my God, that's that's so awesome. Well, epic fantasies are more of a you're you're 
telling a, a grand scale with a lot of you know, morals and everything like that. And so a lot of people nowadays will say that the kind of that pulp stuff is dead. That's an older style, but you know, right now my news feed is full of people talking about, oh my God, there's going to be a new Indiana Jones. <laughs> so we, we love the pulp style. And uh, James Bond is one of my favorite ones. And, you know, spoiler, he lives through every one. <laughs> he, he will be captured at some point in every one of them. Think about it. Um, and he will have two to three to 15 beautiful ladies on his arms. <laughs> and if we don't have these things, we hate it. Because we, we really do want that, that pulp story. It's not about that. It's about what does James do? What is the awesome thing, you know, that he jumps off of or blows up or his witty line? And that's pulp. It's just fun. So is, so is pulp defined by, by the tropes that, that identify the specific genre niche that the, that particular pulp story uh, occupies? Well, for, for me personally, pulp is, is just a short adventure. It, it it should just be a something you're excited about. It doesn't take an incredible amount of time. It's just kind of, you know, it's candy. It's fun. Everyone loves candy. <laughs> so like the Black Raven novels then, or stories? Oh, absolutely. They're, they're just adventure stories. Um, that actually neatly ties into my second question. I've, I mean, I mentioned before that, that I'd kind of had trouble with D&D fairly significantly. And honestly, as I was putting together these questions, what struck me is that could really be applied to the fantasy genre as a whole. Um, this is a shameful admission, I freely admit, but I got four <laughs> pages into the, um, the, the foreword of Lord of the Rings and, and, you know, four pages into the description of trees. And, and I, I just put it down. <laughs> I never went back. For the longest time, I was a science fiction and horror guy. And, This last year, really, I've found myself connecting more and more with fantasy literature because for me, there's been a step change, certainly with the generation of authors that's coming up, and in particular with a certain group of authors in Britain, Um, Jennifer Williams, Dan Patrick, Lizzie Yaga, Lucy Hounsom, people like uh, Pete Newman to a lesser extent, who I believe was on the show a couple of weeks ago. Indeed. Pete's far more kind of post-apocalyptic than fantasy. All of them seem to almost be striking the middle ground between the two schools that you're talking about, where it's all very fast and dirty. Uh, I mean, I, I defy anyone to pick up Boy with the Porcelain Blade by Dan Patrick and put it down inside half an hour <laughs> and 75 pages later, you know. And the there will now be 27 volumes of this, all of which you could use to successfully bludgeon a whale to death. <laughs> and... I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of people doing really fantastically good stuff in that field. Adrian Tchaikovsky does not know how to write bad words, in, apart from you know the obvious profanity ones. But everything he puts together is great. His books are chuffing huge. But I think that my question really is this: as a fantasy author, do you feel a particular pull towards either field? And as a follow-up, do you ever feel that you have to fight against the vagaries of either field? You know. Oh. Um, I mean, like I say, I'm a horror guy, and I'm very aware there's a lot of horror authors I know whose first response to the question, so what do you write? So I write horror. Wait, come back. <laughs> I'm curious whether you had anything like that. Well, um, well, I'll start off with horror. When when I started reading horror, uh, I was reading a lot of Clive Barker, which his novels are just straight fantasy. Oh, my and God, his, yes. His short fiction is horror. Books of Blood, all that are horror. But if you're reading Great and Secret Show or, you know, Magicka, uh, no. Weave World, any of those, they're straight up usually portal fantasy. 
that might have some horror edge. So I've never really seen too much of a of a difference there. Uh, I think you know they're kind of kissing cousins. You have you know, horror and fantasy, mm-hmm. and um, but when it comes to the the normal genres of you know sword and sorcery versus epic and all that, there is some. Uh, like you're mentioning Lord of the Rings, I I read Lord of the Rings. I have no desire to ever read it again. <laughs> Been uh, there, done that. I tried it when the movies came out, and it was like, oh my god, this is this is grueling. But the Hobbit, I could read the Hobbit again right now, and that's because well, that that's a sword and sorcery story. Or yeah. it's a bank job story. <laughs> it's a heist <laughs> story. Yes, it is. Well, <laughs> sword and sorcery is very. Um, uh, self-motivated you know mm-hmm. we're gonna plunder this mountain we're gonna get the treasure and we're gonna become rich and fat and happy versus we are going to kill the dark lord and make sure that the world is a beautiful place of our because of our selfless act so certain sorcery really speaks to me because i would like to go kill a dragon and steal its treasure and you know but the fate of the world resting on my shoulders is something i just can't uh, associate with uh but a lot of the, the newer authors, uh, Sanderson, uh, with Mistborn, which I've read that one a few times, uh, that one rides a beautiful line between sword and sorcery and an epic fantasy. Uh, and it's, I think he's just kind of pulling from that foundation where it's, it's, it's technically epic, but it reads like a sword and sorcery for the most part because it's got its heist and it's got its really wonderful magic system and a lot of just kind of personal motivations for the characters. That's an interesting point, actually. Now that you, you, you've invoked that, got me thinking, where does the, the role of heroism factor in to sword and sorcery? I mean, in, in, in Lord of the Rings, in epic fantasy, heroism is, is, is quite often, you know, with the exception maybe of George R. R. Martin, uh, uh, heroism is, is the staple, the foundation, the, the, the defining trope, if you will, of, of that of that genre. Sword and sorcery, you know, you think of Conan, you think of Fawford and Grey Mouser, and and ninety percent of those stories are very selfishly oriented. Is there heroism in sword and sorcery? There is. Uh being you know not necessarily having your quest be I'm going to destroy the Dark Lord, but I'm going to get rich, uh you can still be a good guy. And very frequently, your heroes will have that moral dilemma of where they, you know, they have to put aside the treasure in order to save someone or something like that. So they can mm. still be a good person. Uh, Indiana Jones, um, I always like to point out, you never see Indiana Jones murder someone. They're always armed and they're always aware of him. If he comes up behind him, he clubs him over the head. Um, if they're facing him and they got a sword, he'll shoot them. Especially it's a big ass scimitar. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. But but if he comes up behind a sentry, he just clubs him over the head because he's a good guy. He's not a murderer. So he's a he's a wonderful pulp hero, and he's definitely sword and sorcery. But he's still a hero. He's a you know you okay. can trust him. Okay, guys, we're running out of time, but I got one last question. I just want to slip in here real quick. Um, I, I was intrigued to read that uh, uh, during during a trip into Italy, you you had been standing before Cellini's. Perseus with the head of Medusa. Oh God, I love that thing. <laughs> and and that and that was you know that was a transformative moment for you just as an individual as as a human being, and and it moved you so much that you actually translated that and had 
the the character of Matt in Dameron uh, take that exact same pose and actually stand in your footsteps there, and and your your trip to New Orleans uh, while, while your wife was geocaching like a mad fiend, uh, uh, you were spotting all of these locales and these places that translated almost one to one into your stories, and I'm wondering. First of all, have you ever gone back and and stood in those same places again? And did they feel different for you? But but I guess my real intriguing question is, how did you know at that moment that that scene, that event, that location, that spoke to you? What was going on inside your head that made you say, this is going in my story? Well, normally, I haven't been back to visit any of the ones from the novels. I would, I'd, I'd go back to Florence right now if you handed me a ticket. Like, I'd just shut off the podcast and go. <laughs> but, um, it, New Orleans, I'm, I'm desperate trying to get back to right now because, you know, I want to, I want to be able to walk the streets of, you know, exactly where he went and all the, the stories. But I did go back to Italy after writing several of the Black Raven stories to visit sites that were inspired from, you know, from my first trip. And uh, when I first see something, it usually kind of strikes me as that's really cool. And I'm going to put that in a story, but I have no idea how. But, <laughs> um, and I also kind of, I'll jot down notes when I'm on a trip, um, you know, sights, smells, you know, some really weird trivia thing that I might have seen in a museum or on a tour, uh, or I just kind of think back on it, which sometimes they don't really strike me as amazing at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, a couple of weeks later, you're like, man, that was really cool. And uh, it just kind of works its way into there. So a lot of times I know it'll be in a story, but I don't know what the story will be. Okay, so it's basically whatever whatever sticks in your consciousness, whatever's whatever's laying out in that that web of of awareness and, and imagination. If it sticks there, it'll probably filter its way into your story. Yeah, somehow. Okay, all right, very cool. Well, well, friends, the uh, uh, the clock has has drawn a weapon uh, uh, with a blade sticking out under the barrel and brandishing at me uh, uh, with clear menace uh, uh, of intent. So I can only assume that means we have run out of time, as we always do. Seth Skorkowski, this has been a delight, and and I so appreciate you taking the time, man. Thank you. Oh, thank you very much. Absolutely. Al, there was a lot of writerly goodness strewn before our feet in that last round of, of 20-ish minutes. Uh, what, what, what are you taking with you? What's, what's sticking out as, as the, the high point for you? Conflict characters. Because, <laughs> like I said, it's one of those ideas that's so perfect that it's, that it's invisible. It sits in the topography of a story, and it's so easy to miss. And as, as we've been chatting, I've been doing a mental tick list going, yeah, that's got one, that's got one, <laughs> she's totally one, he's, so, he's one too. You know. So the awareness of that, both as a critic and as a fiction writer, is very much what I'm taking away from this. Awesome. Very cool. I, I couldn't agree more. That, that completely is, is stuck in my brain, is being thrust into my writerly toolbox as we speak. I, I was actually, uh, uh, your, your discussion regarding uh, uh, fantasy and, and the dealing with the, the preconceptions and fighting against the trends and, and so on and so forth, that really, that stuck with me because we had uh, uh, Justin Landon on just recently and he talked about how genre is a, is a fictitious conception, which I'm not sure I agree with, but it definitely got me thinking along those lines. And, and I'm, I'm continually struck by... Uh, 
culture of contemporary fiction influencing itself, the, 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 the self-dialogue of genre fiction uh, with itself as it evolves with, with China Miebel's influence with the new weird and the works that evolved from that, and the constant almost euboros quality of, of the snake consuming its own tail. And, and looking at it in the context of Seth's work, uh, uh, both with uh, the Valdecon series and with what he's doing with with Black Raven, uh, uh, it's it it's a wonderful example, I think, of walking that line, engaging in that conversation, and adding to it. And I think that's ultimately what every good writer wants to do: is add to that conversation, not exactly. not be derivative. Exactly. Yep. That uh, that last bit is so important because I love your metaphor of of the the Aroboros. Because you see that at every level of genre fiction. You see mm-hmm. it tropes which are continually recycled. You see it with the same people talking to the same people and agreeing with one another about the same things. You see it with the brush fire wars, which are now at the point where you can set your calendar for the exact <laughs> day they will break out. And the fact that things will happen and 75 people will write blog reaction posts which make exactly the same points. But don't really add anything else to it. And it's so easy to fall into that kind of self-perpetuating cycle. And it's so difficult to be aware you're doing it, and it's even harder to do something new. Mm -hmm. But that's the most important part of all, both for fiction writers and for commentators, I would say. Very much so. Very much so, and 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 a, a good a good goal to set before us as we strive forward in our own respective efforts. So, dear friends, here's the awesomeness of the round table. Not 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 only was that twenty ish minutes fabulous in and of itself, but if you stick around for seven days. We're going to have Seth back. We're going to have Alistair back. And we're going to introduce a courageous guest writer into that formula. And what's going to happen is it's going to be a nuclear detonation of brainstorming fabulosity, the likes of which the potosphere has never seen. You do not want to miss that. But I know it's seven days. That's a long time to be waiting for the epic detonation of the potosphere. Uh, uh, so, so. Alistair, what do you what do you think our listeners need to be doing between now and seven days from now? Well, the obvious answer is uh, go write some stuff. <laughs> uh, but I'm I'm going to go slightly more meta on that. Um, you can turn the world in seven days with any given writing project, unless it's a novel. But even then, you can make a good start. So go write some stuff. Write down your ideas. Build a Pinterest board. Throw interesting looking stuff at it. Um, draft something out. Write it. Sit on it, and that will take you to day four. Day five, go to the movies. There's a lot of really good stuff out at the moment. Day six, come back, revise it. Day seven, sit on it, listen to the show. Day eight, come back, lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> yes. That, that, Alistair, that may be the most definitive explanation of how to spend those seven days we've ever had on the round table. That's awesome. And I couldn't possibly agree more. Putting your stories into the world makes the world a more awesome place. And what, what higher goal could any of us possibly have? And I will tell you, dear friends, as I always do, you find what you're looking for. So look for the awesome. Look for the wow. Look for the oh, hell yes. And if you set your sights on it, I promise you, you will find it. We will see you in just seven days. Until then, you guys stay cool, be frothy, and be awesome. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. This episode of the Roundtable Podcast is copyright 2015 by Wonder Thing Studios. 
and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. That means please don't sell it, but you can share it to your heart's content. You can even use portions of it in your own productions, as long as you release those productions under the same licensing terms and reference us as the source. Theme music for the Roundtable podcast was performed by the Hepcats of Brotown, Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you would like to be a guest writer or guest host, join in on the conversation or just learn more about us, visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast and on Twitter at Writers Podcast. And you can always email us at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.